Welcome to our podcast, Wayfaring Saints, where faith comes alive and the journey never ends. We're your hosts, Carson and Nathan, and we want you to join us on a transformative journey of faith and purpose as we seek to rekindle the flame of authentic Christianity, restore biblical literacy, and pursue the deep, enduring joy of knowing and following Jesus. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoy today's episode of Wayfaring Saints. There has been a plague that has been decimating the church in America, and that plague is called Christian apathy. Christian apathy can be defined as a lack of drive for the things of God or a lack of desire to revolve your life around Jesus. So we see this issue heavily in the American church because Christianity has been taught and in turn believed to be something that is added to your life rather than being the central core identity that your life revolves around. It becomes a sub-identity. There's three core issues when we look at Americanized Christianity. The first being a lack of biblical clarity, and the second being the American dream taking over the blessed hope. Finally, the desire to make our name great has just taken over and rampantly increased within Christian communities. I mean, we see that all across social media with that prosperity, the wealth, the health, and all these things that people are preaching that we can gain renown here and now through our Christian identity. Yeah, and it's it's sad just how much um, you see so many Christians like you're talking about with American Christianity where it almost becomes an accessory to your life, where we're so preoccupied with all these things we live in a culture of distraction where all these things are demanding our attention and whether it's, you know, our job, our family, our, our finances, hobbies, binging Netflix, like all of these things. And then we try to to squeeze Christianity and we try to to fit in maybe reading our Bible or praying when we can. Um, and it just becomes this accessory rather than being a total life transformation. And that's just that's not biblical Christianity. Yeah, biblical Christianity has been something that is almost like an endangered species nowadays where people are more dependent on, say, a, a really good speaker or the next up-and-coming preacher on TikTok, and they're less dependent on what the Bible is actually saying, less dependent on them digging into Scripture, kind of like the Bereans, right? Paul came preaching, and the Bereans took what he taught and dug through Scriptures themselves in order to discern and to look for what the truth was. And they found that the truth was Christ. And so for us, it's the same thing. If we can learn ourselves how to feed ourselves, how to dive through Scripture ourselves, how to look for Jesus, to Jesus ourselves, then that Americanized Christianity begins to dissipate. And that's where we, that's really where we get into the first issue that we're talking about today, which is just a lack of biblical clarity. And as I was thinking about all the issues facing the church in America and just preparing for this episode and studying, it's like it can get really overwhelming. I mean, there's there, there's all of these things and all these issues and you want to get into all of them. And we will get into a lot of those throughout our podcast. But the one thing that has constantly burdened me that I feel like is just the root of so many of these issues is the problem of biblical illiteracy, just a lack of biblical clarity. Um, I was reading this book by D.A. Carson. And he was kind of writing about the same thing, just all these issues and how underlying all of these things is just Christians who simply don't know their Bible, simply don't know God. And 
I mean, it's like A.W. Tozer said, what we think about God is the most important thing about us. And he made this remark that I want to quote because I thought it just really um, hit the nail on the head. It says, the one thing we most urgently need is a deeper knowledge of God. We need to know God better. So much of our religion is packaged to address our felt needs. And these are almost uniformly anchored in our pursuit of happiness and fulfillment. God becomes the great being who, potentially at least, meets our needs and fulfills our aspirations. We think too little of what he is like, of his wisdom, knowledge, power, love, transcendence, mystery, and glory. We are not intoxicated by his holiness and his love. His thoughts and words capture too little of our imagination, too little of our discourse, too few of our priorities. Many of our religious exercises and verbal expressions feel painfully unreal, inauthentic, and merely formulaic. And he goes on to argue how pursuing a deeper knowledge of God will bring improvement in all of these other problematic areas. So that's why we're kind of focusing in on this one here. And I mean, how do you learn about God, right? Like A.W. Tozer said, if that's the most important thing about us, what we think about God, how do we learn more about God? I mean, the Bible, it's God's self-revelation to man. Yet statistically, more and more evangelical Christians are simply rejecting the sufficiency and authority of Scripture. I just want to really quickly go through some of these statistics from a study that was done in 2022 about the um, theological views of of evangelical Christians. And it says 56% believe God accepts the worship of all religions. 43% believe Jesus was a great teacher, but he was not God. 26% believe the Bible contains helpful accounts of ancient myths, but isn't literally true. 38% believe religious belief is a matter of personal opinion. It is not about objective truth. I mean, research shows that this situation isn't great. I mean, these are fundamental things. And many evangelical Christians simply don't know their Bibles and even go so far as to reject its complete authority and relevancy for daily living. But if we don't know our Bibles, if we aren't living and abiding in the word of God, how are we supposed to know what it means to truly follow Christ, to love him and obey him? And this is a huge issue to tackle, one that we'll address in more depth in another episode. But for now, I just really quickly want to focus in on this this one symptom of biblical biblical illiteracy, and that's that many Christians don't understand that we're not just saved from something, we're saved for something. The common view tends to be that salvation is merely a means of getting to heaven. Jesus becomes our get-out-of-jail-free card. We acknowledge him as Savior, but certainly not our Lord. And if salvation was simply about going to heaven when we die, why wouldn't Jesus just save us and then take us home? Because God has a mission for us. He has a purpose for us here. Paul writing in Ephesians, you know, first he writes that we're saved by grace through faith, right? It's not a result of works. We cannot earn our salvation. But then he goes on to say that we are created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Paul writes that we should walk in them. The idea is that it's more than just the occasional religious activity, like going to church, praying or reading your Bible. It's a way of life. It's the life of the new man in Christ, having died to the old self and been born again by the spirit. It's the life of the wayfaring saint. We are called to live a certain way in light of God's transformative saving grace. Now, the point is salvation is far more than just about going to heaven when we die. We live in the already but not yet kingdom of God. We are in the world, but we must not be of the world. We are citizens of heaven called for a purpose. But if we don't know our Bibles, if we don't know these these basic things and go on into deeper truths, how are we going to know what it means to live as citizens of heaven living on earth? How are we going to know what purpose we are saved for? I mean, this is one of the only reasons that biblical literacy is so important. And I could go on and on about this subject, but 
and we will in another episode, but just for the sake of time, uh, we're going to move on. Problem two ties in directly with what he was just talking about. A lot of times we we interpret us being saved for something as it is something that we are supposed to accomplish here on earth, being financial achievement, status game. And that's something that comes with this idea of the American dream. And I want to point out that the American dream in and of itself is not wrong. There's nothing wrong. There's no issue with trying to become successful in life. There's no issue with trying to make more money to provide for your family, to be able to give more, to be generous with your money. That is not an issue. The issue then comes when the American dream replaces what the Christian dream should be. And to start with that, I want to dive into the English Dictionary. The Oxford English Dictionary has it defines the American dream. And that's the ideal that every citizen of the United States should have equal opportunity to achieve success and prosperity through hard work, through determination and initiative. And like I said, there is no issue with that idea in and of itself. But when that becomes the Christian goal, when our job, our role as Christians now becomes to achieve success, to achieve economic advancement, to achieve prosperity, that becomes detrimental to the church. This has been seen bleeding into the church, like I said earlier, under the teachings of prosperity, where Christ's death now makes the way for us to live a prosperous life, where our focus becomes self-serving and self-centered. It makes us believe that our giving influences our prosperity. And there is biblical truth to God taking care of us when we choose to trust him with our finances and we give to him. But God's not just some magic genie in the sky where we punch in the right serial numbers or we enter the right code and out pops whatever we want. He's not a vending machine, right? We put in a few dollars, we give to him every Sunday morning, and then he gives us whatever we want and he prospers us. That's not how it works. It's God's money that we possess, that we steward, that he asks for it, stuff in return, for money in return. And he provides for us in the capacity that we need and it doesn't necessarily mean that he extends us beyond that capacity while he can. But that idea that God does prosper us because we give or that he has to prosper us because we give makes us believe that our giving influences our prosperity and that our church attendance affects our success in life, right? Yeah, and it's interesting how this problem of the American dream, um, trying to make a name great for ourselves, how it relates to the Tower of Babel narrative, right? I mean, God, he created mankind to be a blessing, to be fruitful and fill the earth. And as his representatives, God created mankind to go out and multiply, have a dominion over the earth and spread his rule and reign. And of course, we know the story. Mankind rebelled against God, became separated by sin and descended further and further into evil, violence and destruction. And at the climax of this downward spiral, we have the Tower of Babel, mankind's monument to their own sin and rebellion, an expression of just how far they had fallen from their created role as God's image bearers. And so they say, let's build this tower. Let's make, let's make a name great for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. So God tells mankind to go and spread his rule and reign. 
And instead, mankind comes together and decides to build a kingdom for themselves, to make their name great. It's the exact opposite of what God commissioned mankind to do. Rather than living outwardly for his glory, they live inwardly for their own success and comfort. And the same paradigm is at the heart of so many American Christians today. We are so preoccupied with our own advancement, chasing after our own goals and dreams, doing everything we can to accomplish our will, we never even stop to think about God's will. We live inwardly for ourselves. It's for our own desires and comforts when we are called to live outwardly for the glory of God, an other-centered way of living versus a self-centered way of living. That's really seen in a comment that I've heard from a lot of students that I work with and also with young adults when I used to work with them is that God wants to fulfill my dreams and desires, that God has given me these dreams and desires for a reason. And there's, again, nothing wrong with that. But when you start to say that I have a dream, I have a desire, and because I have a dream and a desire, God has to fulfill that, we're putting things in the wrong order. There are dreams and desires that God gives us, but those dreams and desires have to line up with God's will, right? If our dream and desire is for us to reach out and gain success, to become rich, to have all these things, that doesn't often line up with the heart of God. Yeah. And, you know, I always think about how these words of John the Baptist just cut straight to the heart of this whole um, prosperity gospel, American dream. Uh, He said, he must increase, but I must decrease. I mean, this is absolutely antithetical to the self-centered, self-serving American dream mentality, where I love how the NIV puts it. He must become greater and I must become less. This should be the heart cry of every believer to humble ourselves and seek to exalt Christ's name and live for his glory rather than our own. Or, I mean, the words of Paul, to live is Christ and to die is gain. We all love the second part of that verse. Dying means going to heaven, but we must grab hold of these first couple of words. To live is Christ. Paul doesn't say to live means getting that promotion or to live means going on that dream vacation. No, to live is Christ. Paul understands there's nothing greater than death, passing into glory and dwelling for all eternity in the presence of his Lord and Savior. Yet he understands there's nothing more important than living for Christ, the advancement of his gospel, his church, and his glory. This is Paul's singular focus. I read this um, an online ministry, got questions that I, I love it, and I just had to, to repeat it. It says, um, to live is Christ means that we proclaim the gospel of Christ. To live is Christ means that we imitate the example of Christ. To live is Christ means that we pursue the knowledge of Christ, not just a set of facts about Christ, but Christ himself. To live is Christ means that we are willing to give up anything that prevents us from having Christ. To live is Christ means that Christ is our focus, our goal, and our chief desire. Christ is the center point of our mind, heart, body, and soul. Everything that we do, we do for Christ's glory. And unfortunately, I mean, this is simply just not a reality for many Christians in America. We're just consumed with ourselves. And just to clarify really quick before moving on, Nathan kind of touched on this, but I'm not saying that things like success and comfort are inherently bad. I mean, it would be ridiculous to say that every Christian needs to be unsuccessful or live in poverty. Someone can be successful, have a nice house, a great job, and still live for the glory of God. It's not about what you have or don't have. It's about what you do with what you have. It's about the mindset and the heart behind it all. Do you understand that none of this truly belongs to you? It ultimately belongs to him. Is he your greatest desire and highest joy? And are you ready to lay it all down for his glory if he asked you to? As John Piper once said, 
Your resources may stay in your sway as a manager, a steward, but you must be ready at any time to let go of everything for Jesus' sake. The question at the end of the day, regardless of what circumstances you are in, is simply this. Are you living for yourself or are you living for Jesus? And here's where the solution enters. It's the solution of the wayfaring saint. And it's this this person who chooses to abandon themselves, abandon everything, to focus on the call that Jesus does, which is a call to follow me. There was a story in Matthew 19. It's uh, 19, 16 through 22, where a rich young man comes to Jesus and asks the question, what good things shall I do that I may have eternal life? And Jesus replies, he says, why do you ask me what is good? Keep the commandments and you will enter life. The young man said that he had kept all those commandments and was confused about what he still lacked. This is the state of the American church. We believe that we are keeping the commandments, but we don't know that we still lack so much. Jesus replies, he says, if you wish to be complete, go and sell your possessions and give to the poor and you will have treasures in heaven and come follow me. So Jesus sets the standard. He says following the commandments is important, but that's still lacking. There has to be more than just simply following commandments, simply doing something. But his call to follow him and to focus on our heavenly reward rather than our earthly possessions is also a key to living as a wayfaring saint. The young man walked away grieving because he had a lot of property. And that's the image of the American church. We have focused so much on the here and now that we've invested our money in material gain and in prosperity. We've invested our time into that. We've put our focus on that. All of our attention is on the material and the here and now, what satisfies us now, what pleasures us now. But Jesus calls us to follow him with our whole lives and to turn away because we have too and we turn away because we have too much to give up right if think of this if jesus were to come to us now and say sell everything you have pack up your family take nothing but whatever you can carry on your back and follow me how would you respond to that i know for me it'd be really hard to pack my cats up <laughs> into a bag and grab all the possessions that i like and to pack up my wife and to say, all right, we're going to follow Jesus. We don't know where we're going to lay our head. If you guys remember the story, we don't know because Jesus doesn't have a place to lay his head. It would make it really hard for us to do that. But there is a clear call from Jesus to abandon the desire for material things, not necessarily to not have any material possessions, but to abandon the desire to chase after these material things. Jesus' solution to the travesty is clear. Follow him. Focus on eternity. That's our heavenly home. As a wayfaring saint, our focus should be solely fixed on eternity, on our heavenly home. And I don't say that in a way to say we shouldn't think about the here and now, but when we're focused on eternity, the way we view the here and now changes. The way we look at things now changes. We see it in light of eternity. And lastly, to live out his teachings. He says, follow me. You will have treasures in heaven and obey the commandments. So the direct opposite of making our name great is to live lives with the goal of making someone else's name great. And that's solution number one. That's the solution to making our name great is to make Jesus's name great. 
And that's the call to follow him. We're asked, as Christ followers, people who affirm that we follow Jesus in this life, we're asked to make him known, not ourselves, right? There's a story in the Bible where Jesus sends out the disciples two by two, and he has them preach the kingdom and them go out declaring not that they have the ability to heal people, not that they have the ability to cast out demons, but to proclaim the coming of the kingdom and that the kingdom is already here. Yes, there is healing. Yes, there is casting out of demons, but that is not them puffing themselves up and proclaiming that we have done these things, but they're to show the glory of God. And so if we're building our lives around the giftings that we have in a way to build ourselves up, then we're not doing it correctly. We should be doing that and using those giftings to build up the name of Jesus. And that's the goal of him asking us to follow him. So Nathan kind of touched on it there. Um, one of the solutions being living with our focus on our heavenly home or living in light of eternity. And living in light of eternity is really about rightly prioritizing. And a few verses that always come to mind for me, Psalm 39.4, which says, Lord, make me know my end and what is the measure of my days. Let me know how fleeting I am. And Psalm 90.12, which says, teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. The problem for so many of us is that we hold death at a distance. We think far too little of it, but the reality is we're all going to die and it could be any day. And here the cry of the psalmist is that this reality would ever be at the front of our minds. In other words, in light of the fact that our lives are fleeting and in the span of eternity, merely a blink of an eye, help us to focus on and live for what really matters, what has eternal significance. This is what we're called to do. And here's the thing. Eternal life isn't just some future event. It, it, it's right now. Jesus says in John chapter 17, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So how do we live this eternal life right now? I mean, what does that even mean? Well, the quote from a commentary says, knowing has to do with being transformed into the image of Christ, having the Holy Spirit at work in us, absorbing the truth of God's word, ordering our life around the things of God, seeking to see God at work in every situation. It's an active, all-encompassing, total life surrender and makeover. It's living in God's righteous path centered in God's will, making it our highest priority to further God's interests in his kingdom in every way. Then what starts now finds its perfection in life eternal in the world to come. And it's like, man, we are so blessed in America with religious freedom. And we hear that a lot, right? Freedom. It's kind of like the American hallmark. But the thing is, so many of us have abused that freedom. We've used that freedom to pursue the American dream, to build our own kingdom or to make our own name great. And yet in Luke 14, Jesus lays out the cost of discipleship and it is so not compatible with that mindset and lifestyle. Here's the thing. So context of Luke 14, there's all these people that have started following Jesus. He's been doing miracles, healing, giving out free food. And yet Jesus knows what's in their hearts. These people didn't want Jesus. They weren't willing to lay down their lives to follow him. They just wanted the things he had to offer, the benefits, the blessings. So what does he say to them? He says, Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Everyone knew that carrying a cross ended in crucifixion. That's why Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. Of course, 
This doesn't always mean in a physical sense. We aren't all going to be martyrs, but it is certainly true in the sense that we must die to the old man, the old way of living into our self. As Stephen Lawson said, you must transfer the ownership of all that you are and all that you have to all that he is. Your time is no longer your time. It is now his time. Your possessions are no longer your possessions. They are now his possessions. Your future is no longer your future. It is now his future. We must understand that this is what it means to follow Christ. It is a total, complete surrender of your life to Christ and his will. And living in light of eternity, we realize nothing is of greater importance and urgency. And here's the thing that I just really quickly want to conclude with. Psychology has shown that the more something costs someone, the more they value and cherish it. And following Jesus will cost you more than you think, but it's worth far more than you could ever imagine. Everything set aside for Jesus will only lead to greater joy and satisfaction in him. And that's the thing. The call to lay down your life to follow Christ is not joyless submission. That's the outside world's perception of Christianity. It's all about joyless obedience and denying the pleasures and joys of life. However, the truth is, it's exactly the opposite. God knows that we will find no greater joy, peace, and satisfaction than in dying to ourselves and living wholeheartedly for him, the one whom we were created to know and enjoy for all eternity. As John Piper always says, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. So yes, to conclude, we need to die to ourselves daily and refrain from living as the fallen world does. Yes, we are called to live holy and righteous lives set apart for God, and often that's going to be difficult. And yes, we need to relinquish control of everything we own and live with a willingness to surrender it all. Yes, we need to live with an eternal perspective and pursue His glory, His will, and His kingdom rather than our own. But make no mistake, this is not a call to a life of dull, joyless religiosity. The ultimate goal and highest aim of the call to follow Christ is to know and enjoy Him, the one whom we were created for, the one who loved us beyond comprehension and gave Himself for us that we might know Him for all eternity. And the best way to know Him and to develop that joy in Him and that love for Him is to understand his teachings, understand what he taught, what he stood for, what he tells us to live like. In Matthew 28, 20, there's the beautiful scene where Jesus is sending off the disciples and he says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And he gives them this command where we, we are then seeing, okay, the first goal is making disciples. It's calling people to follow Jesus alongside with you. It's the idea of taking yourself away and making Jesus known. And that comes through the idea of baptism, where we die to ourselves, like Carson was saying, where we now get rid of everything that is us. We get rid of all our goals, our passions, our desires, and we line ourselves up with the goals, the wills, and the passions, and the the ideals that God gives us through Jesus, and we come out of baptism a new person, a new creation. So solution number three is to understand his teachings, to gain biblical clarity, and to understand the mission that we now have as wayfaring saints, as people who follow Jesus. C.S. Lewis has this wonderful quote from Mere Christianity. He says this, To have faith in Christ means, of course, trying to do all that he says. There would be no sense in saying you trusted a person if you would not take his advice. Thus, if you have really handed yourself over to him, 
it must follow that you are trying to obey him. But trying in a new way, less worried way. Not doing these things in order to be saved, but because he has begun to save you already. Not hoping to get to heaven as a reward for your actions, but inevitably wanting to act in a certain way because a first faint gleam of heaven is already inside of you. And to break that down, it simply means when we trust someone, when we put our trust in someone, we do what they say not because we have to, not because there's obligation to, not because we get something out of it or we get salvation out of it. No, we are given salvation through Jesus freely. He gives it to us without requiring us to sacrifice for it. And so he gives us freedom and salvation. And as a response to that, we choose to obey him. We choose to love him. Like C.S. Lewis said, there is a faint gleam of heaven that's already inside of us. Carson mentioned it. It's this idea of the already not yet, where the kingdom of heaven is already here on earth, but it is not yet fully realized. There will be a time when the second coming comes, when there is judgment, when Jesus returns, and all things are made new, made right. And in that time, we will have glorified bodies and we will live lives with Jesus here on earth. We'll inherit the earth. There's that gleam of eternity of heaven already in us. But here on this life, we need to live focused on that, knowing that there is something at the end of the road of our life. There is an eternity waiting. And our goal now is to go and make disciples, is to gather as many people as we can to live in that life with us, to follow us along, to follow Jesus, to look to him, and to live in eternity with him. That's the goal of Wayfaring Saints. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Wayfaring Saints. Your support means the world to us. If you enjoyed it, please consider following, leaving a review, and sharing the podcast so that we can grow our community of Wayfaring Saints together. Join us next week as we continue to discuss what it means to follow Jesus as citizens of heaven living on earth.